I call this talk, I find this hard to believe, and why you shouldn't find it hard to believe. You'll, you will discover through the presentation why I've named it this. I use this phrase over and over in my trainings. Okay, so you will need at least four things. Uh, if you're going to address and respond to abuse in the congregations. And um, I've used the A words, awareness, a ready response, advocacy resources, and action. So this presentation covers those four. That's what I'm going for today. And then as you have questions, get my attention. Okay. Step one, awareness. And these three little things are the things that I want to emphasize uh, about how to develop awareness. Um, one is that relational abuse, domestic violence, spouse abuse, intimate partner violence, um, gender-based violence, violence against women, I use all those words interchangeably. And so don't worry about the vocabulary if it doesn't fit for you just make some adjustments. So relational abuse and violence is a serious problem in the Adventist church today. I know that that's an assertion, and I hope that by the end of the conversation that we have, um, that you'll say, yeah, that is where my awareness is right now. Uh, the other thing, two things that you need to know is domestic violence appears in many forms. Abuse happens in many forms, and we're gonna cover that first thing. And then it's largely hidden. Uh, it, you don't really see it unless it's, it gets to that point where it's, um, it has escalated. So keep that in mind. I brought with me a very important guest speaker today. I will let her introduce herself. Hi, my name is Karen, and I'm a domestic violence survivor. We tape recorded her story, and um, she said those words, and then she said, turn off the camera. Because she said, this is the first time I've ever introduced myself like that. And it took her a minute, and she'd been out of her relationship for more than 10 years by then. So just think of how impactful we started the, cam the camera again after she got a breath. Uh, but you're going to hear a few snippets of her story only. But hopefully th those snippets will give you some grounding and awareness. So there are many types of abuse, but we're going to hit on four today. Uh, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse. And remember, this is in adulthood rather than childhood. Okay, so physical abuse. Uh, we did three studies on abuse in the Adventist church. Uh, the first study was a quantitative survey of 49 churches with 1,431 responses from men and women, uh, just adults in the congregation. How we did it was we set up with the pastor to come and uh, provide a family life Sabbath. 
So we had a, um, a sermon uh, that focused on family life. And then after that, we said, we're not taking up an offering today. Instead, we're asking for an offering of your time to give back to your church some information that we need to build programs that will be helpful to people. And so if you would please stay right now after this service, men on one side of the sanctuary, women on the other side of the sanctuary. This is long enough ago that we handed out paper surveys, right? So we had paper surveys. Uh, people were safe to write whatever they wanted to, answer the questions as they needed to. And then when they were done, they just slipped their survey in a locked box. So it was uh, a very safe way to gather this data. And uh, we, we got really good data on this. And the second um, study was a qualitative in-depth interview study that we did with 42 uh, survivors. So they needed to um, tell us that they were an adult and that they um, survived uh, domestic violence, spouse abuse, during the time that they were in the church. Because by this time, some of them had left the church. Uh, but there's a long story on how we got these women to participate. But nonetheless, so you know where this data is coming from. So on physical abuse, here's some examples of what we heard from the women. And I'm going to be saying names. Please know that these names are pseudonyms. But we don't want these um, people that participated in our study to be anonymous and no face, no name. Okay. Kara's husband threatened to smash her face into a plate and then locked her in her room for hours. Janet recalled being beaten and punched, including being punched in the stomach while she was pregnant. Almost on a daily basis, her husband would grab her hair, kick her, yell at her, and hit her in the face until it was swollen. Lisa's spouse threw things at her, for example, a fan, glass bottles, or whatever was handy. He shoved her, choked her, and tried to suffocate her. He sprayed her and her seven-year-old son with pepper spray. He also took a baseball bat to the windshield of her car while she was at work. Okay, so now you have a feel of what we're talking about when we talk about physical abuse. In the survey study, we found uh, that one in five women, uh, one in five men, one in three women um, had been physically abused in their adulthood with an intimate partner. Emotional abuse. Yeah, I'll leave it there for a minute. In our study, the most prevalent type of abuse was emotional abuse. And for some types of emotional abuse, um, women and men were almost equally represented. Other kinds of abuse, uh, predominantly the victims were female, but not so in emotional abuse. Here are some examples from our qualitative study when we talked to, to women who had been abused. Betty's husband didn't want her to clean the house. 
So he broke her broom, mop, and vacuum cleaner while regularly smearing feces on the wall. He also threatened to hit the children in her licensed childcare and took the children's food, forcing her to close her business. Kay's husband abused her dog by denying it food, water, and not letting it go outside to potty as a way to punish her. Joanne's husband controlled when she left the house and where she drove the car. She was not allowed to go out to eat or have any girlfriends. So that's what emotional abuse feels like and sounds like and manifests itself. Spiritual abuse. Uh, some folks, uh, spiritual abuse is a new thing, but um, I think it's been around a very long time. Spiritual abuse uh, includes citing scripture to justify abusive or controlling or manipulative behavior. Spiritual loose abuse includes making oppressive demands based on their interpretation of scripture or other religious teachings. And I'm gonna share with you some examples from our study. <clears throat> Amy's husband insisted that God had given him a vision, saying he needed a second wife to come and live with them. He also declared that he was the head of the household and that God would communicate through him about how she should act towards him. Veronica told us he would quote the Bible. He knew the Bible real well. Well, this text says a wife should be submissive to the husband. He zeroed in on that and took that radically. He would browbeat me and condemn me on that. And again, whatever I wore, it wasn't good enough. He forbade me to wear any kind of pants, slacks, or anything. Women shouldn't wear that stuff. You need to wear dresses or skirts all the time. And I couldn't wear makeup. I had to keep my hair straight. Even at that, it wasn't good enough. I couldn't listen to anything that he didn't think was Christian music. Couldn't do anything. Okay, I'm going to read you one more. This time I want you to be thinking about how is this spiritual abuse? Okay, ready? About six months after we were married, I decided I'd made a huge mistake and that I needed to reverse it, and I left. The day I left, he threatened to shoot me with an M16 machine gun. He pulled it out and started shooting the tires of my car. I left and went to my parents' house, explained to them what was going on, and their thought process was that this was the decision that you had made. And you know, when you get married, it's for life. You have to take the good with the bad. And I guess I always reached out to my parents thinking they were going to be there to kind of console me and help me. But the attitude was always a pretty strict Adventist belief that once you're married, it's for life regardless of the circumstances. 
that God obviously put you in that situation for a reason and that you need to deal with it and make the best of it. So I did. I went back. Any thoughts on spiritual abuse in that situation? Anyone like to comment? I think a lot of it is um, just ignorance, not realizing really what they're going through. And that's one of the good things about this class is that it'll make us more aware. So. The awareness is that first step. And we're going to give the parents the benefit of the doubt and say that they were unaware. But now you can help all those parents out there. Sure. I've worked with quite a few abused women, um, and most of them wind up feeling like their husband replaces God in their lives. And they've been told that in order to honor God, they must honor their husbands above God. Oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah, from a spiritual perspective, uh, we need to put God on top, right? <laughs> he is the one that we worship, not human beings. Okay. So here is Karen talking about several types of abuse. My husband not only did verbal abuse, but he did financial. I was working full time as an RN, but I had no money. He was in control of everything. He had spiritual abuse. He told me, God hates divorce. Women submit to your husbands. And I did believe that I was married for life. I took my vows seriously. Another one he loved to say was, I own you, and I have the marriage license to prove it. And then for sexual abuse, in our study of um, Adventist adults, we found that our statistics on sexual violence uh, nearly mirrored that of other U.S. populations. For males, those reporting that they had been raped by an intimate partner, it was a fraction of 1%. For females in our study, 6% had been raped by their spouse. National statistics were only slightly higher with 7%. Uh, we also asked about pornography use, and the female respondents reported about 23% of their spouses used pornography. So uh, I'll give you some information from other women and what it sounds like to be sexually abused. <clears throat> Nyla's husband forced her to watch pornography with him while he would masturbate. If Sandy didn't perform sexually exactly what her husband wanted her to do, he would slap her ears and then rape her in front of their then three-year-old son. Catherine's husband demanded that she not wear any clothes in the house. And one time, he ordered her to answer the door while she was nude. 
that's what it sounds like, feels like. Karen's story we're going to uh, go to next about her experience with sexual abuse. Uh, Karen starts off uh, this segment by talking about pornography. So when we ask about um, sexual violence, we also ask about pornography use because of their so close connection. And Karen will connect those dots between pornography use and sexual violence for you. Karen did go to her pastor for help at the urging of a friend. She said, again, these are all pseudonyms, Bobby is hurting me and tying me up. The pastor looked at her and said, I find that hard to believe. You see, I've never even heard a curse word from him before. So I find that hard to believe. Karen stood up and ran out. She was so embarrassed because the number one fear of many abuse survivors is not being believed, which is also one of the things that keeps them from sharing their experience. In the first study, the, qual the quantitative survey, we did not ask about the church uh, relationship with any of the abusers. With the qualitative study, we, um, we did ask um, when you were being abused, uh, what was the status of your spouse? Church member, not church member, um, some leadership position, etc. And what we found was because the quantitative study came first and people said, oh, well, that might be true, but those abusers, they, it was because the women married non-Adventists. That's why they got abused, because obviously they, they married unequally yoked. So we fixed that criticism in the second study. And uh, so we, when we talked to the 42 women, five of their abusers had been pastors. Six had been elders, and five had been deacons in the church. And then they held these various offices at one point during the abusive period. Just to give you an idea of the hidden nature of abuse, we, we can't see it. And, and so if, if, you're, if you don't have it in your head that this can happen, then you're not going to see it, right? Okay, so when I started this uh, presentation, I said we were gonna go through um, four different things. One was awareness. Do you feel like your awareness has been raised some? Nodding, yes, okay, good. So we're gonna go to responses now. I'm just gonna give you the very basic response because there's not a workshop in the world that lasts one hour that you're gonna be prepared to really respond, right? It takes a lot more than that, but I'm going to give you some vocabulary that you can use. Uh, to have a good response, you need to have four components. And what I call the first one is certainty, the next compassion, 
culpability and complete confidentiality. I'm going to take these one by one. And remember that if you want this PowerPoint, you can sign up on the sign-up sheet that's going around. I need your name and your email address. Okay, certainty sounds like I believe you. Okay, let's give that a try, please. I'm going to say it, and then you repeat it after me. I believe you. That's all you need. And then one person in the room at least is saying, but, but what if she's not really believable? What if he's not really believable? Should I still say that? Yes. Because the error of not believing when it's true is way worse than the error of believing them when it isn't true. Does that make sense? You can do more damage by not saying this than by saying it. By saying, you can do more damage, yeah. So you want to, whatever is going on in your head, say, I believe you. Now, I did a pastor training, a, a research, another research study. Uh, we trained 100 pastors um, in a model of responding. And we, this was one of the things that we taught. And it just seems so simple, like, why would you even say that? Why even have it be part of your training? But you know what? It wasn't three weeks later that I got an email from one of the pastors, and he said, you're not going to believe it. I just had a, a woman come to me, and my mind was going blank, but then I remembered to say, I believe you. <laughs> God works in mysterious ways. Okay, I believe you. That's certainty. Compassion sounds like, I'm so sorry that this is happening to you. I'm so sorry that this has happened to you. Okay, we're going to try it together one more time. I'll say it, and then you say it. I'm so sorry that that's happened to you. Ready? I'm so sorry that it's happened to you. Okay, you've got the first two. I'm, I believe you. I'm so sorry. If you can say those two things, you're well on your way to an appropriate response. And you can share these words with other church members and even with your pastor. Okay, then the third one, culpability. is What I mean by that is you recognize and identify what or who is responsible. It sounds like this. The abuse is not your fault. The person who acted abusively is responsible. Because they've been told so many times, it's your fault. If you would have just brought me mayonnaise instead of this salad dressing, I wouldn't have had to beat you. You know that I like that closet door shut. And now there it is open. Slam, slam. Okay, so they've heard it. It's their fault. You need to identify who is responsible and have that be very, very clear. The abuse is not your fault. Ready to say that one? The abuse is not your fault. Good. And then the second piece is identifying who that is. Good. This last one is not last because it's not as important as other ones. This is as important, if not the most important thing, because someone's life is on the line, perhaps, if you tell what's going on or where they are. So the church elder is the one that's acting abusively. 
And um, in this case, the, the wife went to a shelter, and you know that. And he says, you know, I know that you can't tell me exactly where she is, um, but I want, I want her to have this money. I, I'll, I want to take it to her. Can you please just have us meet someplace? Can you tell, us, tell me where she is? What do you say? No. <laughs> what? Don't know what you're talking about. Okay, always confidentiality, and I can't tell you how many women that we talked to said that this is so crucially important. Yeah. Okay, so that's awareness and a ready response. Check, check. Now, advocacy resources. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly so we have plenty of time for questions, but again, um, this just gets you started, but this will help you know what is out there. Okay, so the, the top uh, three that I recommend uh, is the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and there is uh, the URL for that, and then there's a similar one in Canada, and then there's an international list as well. So nobody's left out. We, there are resources around the world. Question. Okay, so the question is that these, the resources that I have on the PowerPoint are um, for sexual abuse in adulthood and um, domestic violence. And so what about what? Okay, there, um, I'll show you one resource for that. Um, she asked about emotional abuse. Any other questions while we're paused? Okay, so when you click on the hotline, this is what comes up, states and territory coalitions. So you, you go on the drop down there, and then my state right now is Mississippi, and so I click on that, and then it gives a hotline number and an email address and a website. So that website can, can work for any state. You just have to click down. So resources specifically for um, women of faith or men of faith. My favorite one is called The Rave Project. The Rave Project was um, thought of and um, developed by one of the leading researchers in the intersection of domestic violence and faith. And that is Nancy Nason Clark. Nancy Nason Clark. You can go on Amazon and you can get her books. Anything that she writes is gold. So um, that's one author that I would encourage you to follow. She um, was at the university in Canada for a long time, now retired and playing with her grandchildren. So go to the Rave Project. And then you click on resources, and then you can choose what kind of resources. Resources for, for, for women who are being in an abusive situation, um, you just hit that red button and you're out of there and nobody knows that you are looking at that site. Okay, so that's helpful. There are video resources, community resources, clergy resources, violence around the world, and print resources. So you can check on any of those things for yourself. 
Advent Source has some resources as well. So it, they're not e that easy to find, so that's why I'm kind of taking you through this. So this is the opening page, and then Pastor Resources. Click on Pastor Resources, then there's a drop-down, and one of them is Domestic Violence and Abuse. So from the opening page, Pastor Resources, drop down to Domestic Violence and Abuse. And here are some of the books that you can see. Um, Women's Ministries, uh, and it now has this for the taking. You can have it. And uh, so all these are available. Uh, this is also um, the Women's Ministries, and it now booth has, has those available for you. Just go by and pick them up. Okay, this is one of Nancy Nason Clark's books, and you will see that there are well-known authors here. Okay, so you can learn about things from this particular book about Adventists and responses to abuse. You can go and take courses that are online and free. And so we found these, they're offered... Uh, they were developed in uh, the UK, but they are free. Just click on those. You can do um, sexual violence basics or domestic violence basic awareness. And then there's central.com for courses. Here is one on supporting victims of domestic violence, also free. And then um, from the human rights careers, five free courses to support victims of gender-based violence. So these resources are available to you, they're available to your church, uh, they're all free. So click, awareness, check, a ready response, check, advocacy resources now. My favorite. Action, okay. Here are some specific actions that I would love to see you take when you return home. Let church members know. It could be the, the church members or church leaders or even your pastor uh, that relational abuse, domestic violence happens among Adventists. Question. I know, they, they want it recorded. So the End It Now that they do every year, uh, when is that next one coming up, do you know? Yes. Sorry. Okay, the next one is in November. I'm not sure of the dates, but um, I do know that it's November, kind of mid-November. You can go by the End It Now booth and there's a little display that says that. Great, great question, thanks for asking. Okay, question. Okay, would it be appropriate to call adult, appro uh, adult protective services? Uh, there's nothing prohibiting that. There, that would be a good thing probably, but um, probably they wouldn't do anything. They, there wouldn't be much of a response would be my first guess. Because a lot of times uh, that the person has to be an older adult, like age 65 or higher, or disabled in some way. So 
but that varies from state to state and even county to county, so it's worth a try. Some states, uh, though, um, you can be an outside reporter about uh, adult abuse, because it is a crime, uh, but then again, crime in the home seems less important to law enforcement sometimes than crime outside the home. So here are three things. Thank you for your question. Uh, volunteer. Volunteer to be an anti-abuse advocate for your church, to serve as a primary contact, to receive and give out information, because information changes all the time, right? You need new links, you need new resources, you need new information, and you need to pass that on. There needs to be somebody to contact. We, we have a lot of things that could be helpful, but if we don't have anybody to contact, then the information isn't used. So this is one of the actions that we're asking for, is to be have a contact in each church. Then uh, another thing, uh, there is a abuse prevention Sabbath uh, that happens in August. It's the third or fourth Sabbath. This, this, this year it's the 27th. Thank you so much. And um, in my experience in the US, it's not that often that not that many churches actually have Abuse Awareness Sabbath. It, <laughs> it just isn't that popular of a topic, right? But you can be the voice that makes a difference in your church by saying to the pastor, this is really important. We could be saving lives here by honoring this Sabbath. And um, women's ministry develops sermons and PowerPoints, and you don't have to create anything. You can just download it from the site. So it's very easy to do to have an abuse awareness Sabbath. And then post information about abuse um, in the in the church's restrooms, what, what has been successful is like a flyer in the stalls and then on the bottom, tear-offs with numbers. Because a woman can put that in her shoe and nobody will know that she has it. You can, you can do the same in the men's restrooms as well because men are also abused, right? So also if you would put a link on your website, your church website, that would be very helpful. Because it gives the message that we know this exists. It doesn't have to be so shameful. It's like we add one layer of shame on top of a difficult situation, right? Like if, if you were a good Christian, this wouldn't be happening to you, right? That's the message we give sometimes. Uh, if you have a Facebook page, add a link or in your church newsletter, at least once a quarter. That would be so helpful. So these are some actions that we're hoping that you'll take as a result of being here today. Then, something that we've covered but I want to go back to. When someone comes to you and shares that they are in a hurtful relationship, an abusive relationship, their partner acts abusively, 
the main action that you need to take is believe. Believe them. Say, I'm so sorry to hear that. Together, we'll find the resources that you need. Find the resources ahead of time, please. Okay. This is how Karen says she will be making a difference in acting. So why did God allow this to happen? I have no clue. But I do know that God brought me through it. And if it's to tell my story to help other abused women, then that's what I will do. If it's to let pastors know in our churches, not to say the words, I find that hard to believe, but to believe an abused woman when she comes to you. Whatever the reason, I give God the glory for bringing me through it. And I just want to tell other women that there is hope. Amen, right? So, uh, my name, email address, phone number. You can text. If, if you call, I probably won't answer right away. <laughs> so the safest thing to do is call, or I mean text, and then say, I'm so-and-so. I was at this, um, it was that called, and um, I have a question for you. And we'll start out by texting, and then I'll, once I know who it is, then I'll uh, pick up. But that is what I wanted to share with you today. And now I'd like to open the floor to questions. Yes. Can you come? I can't go. I can go this far. This is as far as I can go. I really appreciate all of this, what you're sharing with us. My question is, do we have resource in the Spanish? Because we have the privilege to serve the Hispanic population. Yes. OK, my main, um, OK, so the, the two uh, booklets are in Spanish. And they are at the End It Now booth. So you can pick those two things up there. Um, beyond that, as far as a person who is very knowledgeable, um, Melissa Ponce Rodas, she is stationed at Andrews University. And she's done original research um, in Spanish churches, and that's where her main ministry is. So you're a psychologist at Andrews University, Melissa Ponce Rodas. I'm not sure that pornography is her, her issue, but um, she could find those resources. She could help you find those resources for sure. Good question. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Okay, so for the purpose of recording, uh, the question had to do with 
what should we do when there is a, a public situation that occurs in a church? They haven't been able to do the prep work, but here they are. And, and what was offered was that often uh, the congregation rallies around the person that acted abusively, and that is true. We see that over and over. And so what do we do? Um, in any situation, I probably would advise the, the same thing, either whether you're prepared or whether you're not. But both people need support. When someone acts abusively, um, they still need support because they, they need to change. And the person that has been victimized and surviving um, needs a lot of support. So from the pulpit, it's, it's good to say, we are here to support everyone. We want to make sure that we give resources and love to everyone that's hurting. And we know that both sides are hurting. Yeah, and um, connect with local resources. That's really important because each state, each county has its own processes. Some are handled by the police, some are handled by local abuse um, services. And they have their own way of doing things, and they are the experts. So if something crops up, just then find that local resource. If you have a nurse or a social worker in your congregation, they can be really good resources for you, because they should know what some of those local resources are and what they do, and connect. Don't just give the person a number. Say, call this number. They might be able to help you. Call with them. Does that get you started? Hi, thank you for this presentation. It was excellent. I have two comments. Um, somebody asked about could they call Adult Protective Services, and um, Renee is correct. Adult Protective Services is um, mostly for people who are 65 and older. But if there's a child in the home that's visualizing seeing the abuse, experiencing the abuse of the um, domestic violence, you can call Child Protective Services, and they will come in and service the family. But keep in mind, the other side to that is that if they find the case as indicated, they will take the child from the home, from the parents. So that's to be aware. I'm a social worker. I kind of know that. And the other um, comment I want to address is, for if a situation happens publicly, which it happened in, uh, in my conference, um, and it almost split the church because one was on the side of the victim, one was on the side of the abuser, what, they, what we did, because um, I'm the family life director as well, is that the conference president, I mean, as soon as it happened in the week, because it was in the media, that next Sabbath, we all came to the church. And um, the conference president, the secretary, us, the family life leader, and we allowed the members to voice their concerns respectfully, because everybody wants to be heard. Everybody wants to share what they think. So we allowed them to voice their concerns. And like you said, we said that you know we have to um, respect each other and be concerned for both sides 
Um, and I think that helped the church. And it was um, a Franco-Haitian church, so that, which is a different type of culture, how they respond to things when this happened. So it's important to allow them to voice their concerns and know that they're being heard both sides. Because if they feel that you're not listening to them for whatever, whoever they're choosing, whichever side they're choosing, they will definitely become so um, angry and hurt and not want to return. And so you have to allow, I think, both sides to express their concerns and help each side with resources. And like you said, identify a social worker or therapist that's in their church. But I would say contact the family life directors if your conference has one and have them come in because most of them are qualified to deal with these type of family situations like our conference. Thank you so much. Great answer. Other things that you're wanting to know? Early in the presentation, you dealt with confidentiality. Really critical. I'm, um, I'm a pastor for more than 40 years, and I'm also an attorney. And I know some pastors think that they hold the privilege. They don't. The church member does. The attorney's client holds the privilege. I can't breathe a syllable unless the client or the church member gives me permission to do that. And I suspect that's true across the board with all, with all confidentiality. So it's really critical that that is respected and honored. Thanks for reinforcing that. It's so important. So, so my question is, you know, we've talked more about adult abuse, um, it, but I've had two church situations now where it was kid-on-kid kid abuse. And are there special resources that are available to us to relate to those situations? Because it's really hard because my little kid would never do that. And they get the whole church involved. And it's really hard to, to deal with it. And I didn't get any support when I called asking for help from the conference. <laughs> Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, Andre, do you want to answer that? Um, As a person on the ground, I rely on you. So, because um, I'm with the University of Southern Mississippi, and you know, it's it's one step away. Yeah. So, child on child abuse. Um, yeah, that's that's, and it happens a lot in, in churches that we've seen since I've been one of the family life directors, but. Um, the, some towns have what's called the um, Child Abuse Society. I'm not sure what they call them in New York. It's different because I'm from New York. Um, child yeah, Child Protective Services. And then there's a separate agency that's called Child Advocacy Center. Thank you so much, which is a third party independent. They come in as a third party um, and speak with both children. Um, and it's at the consent of the family, but if the abuse, if the victim is so abused, then um, they don't have to get the consent of the family because they see that the case is what I call indicated, or there's actual abuse has happened, and they see it, or they've heard it after speaking with the children. They do play, um, art therapy, play therapy with the child, you know, to figure out what happened, and um, that works. I've used them in New York Child Advocacy Center. And before I call, before we call Child Protective Services, and actually Child Advocacy Center actually does the call after they come in. And usually the pastors that we've worked with, 
agreed with that. The church congregation on a whole was okay with that because, yes, it is correct. The parent of the, the abuser, totally in denial, you know, and it's shocking and hurtful when they do find out. But um, the Child Advocacy Center is the resource that I use. I don't know what the name of it is called in all the other states, right. but if you Google Child Advocacy Center, I think they have a state drop down and you can choose them. The conference, unfortunately, I hate to say this, um, sometimes may not know because they, it never happened. Sometimes in some conferences, so it's a first time situation, but that's who I would use if I was you. And the family life directors, if you have one, because I understand not all conferences have one, have that department, they should know. Them and the women's ministry definitely should be aware because we go to trainings all the time about this. But in my conference, we happen to be trained in this. I'm a social worker, I'm a marriage and family therapist, so that's how come I'm kind of familiar with what the resources are. Go ahead. Let's hear your question. Say the name again. Corey Jewel Jensen. Okay, thank you. Great. Great, wonderful, thanks. Um, sorry, I'm sorry. Another resource at NED is um, Claudio and Pam Consuego. Yes, very helpful to myself. We call them all the time. And um, they have a lot of resources as well because um, they're the family life directors. Um, they talk, especially Pam, she's very good at giving information on this subject. Okay, anything else? Yes. But it is so wonderful. We all are here um, seeing the reality, what happened in our churches. And it's so sad, so sad. Uh, I would like to share this uh, story, true story, actual experience uh, in one of our churches. Um, it was some problems with the marriage couple. They had two girls, and they ended up... Uh, arguing, and the mom uh, called the child protective, and she reported it uh, child abuse from the dad to one of the girls. So uh, they called. They called and let my husband know, and we was in the middle of church doing something, and he decided to go right then to this family house to help them. So we knew it, the Child Protective Services social workers were in their way to take the kids uh, out of the house. Um, what happened, they came up with a formulary to make questions to the mom and the girls, and they did what they are supposed to be doing it, but the presence of the pastor at that moment changed the whole thing. So they interviewed my husband about them as a church members, and they searched a little bit more information about 
how uh, this church member's family are being observed in church. Of course, he reported it, what he noticed from them, and that was the reason why these social workers, they didn't took the kids out of the house. So they, um, I think, wrote a documentation to have this family and kids on observation. And uh, they actually, I think, did more investigation from the pastor. And this family had a real bad time. But now that family is together. This bad experience makes them stronger. And the family is still in church. So why I'm sharing this story? Because as a, a pastor plays a big role in this situation. If you, I think if we're going to call, because we have to notify right, the authorities, uh, make sure you're going to be there in case they can separate the couple, they can take the family apart, or if it's the children's, I mean, we know this is going to be traumatic for anybody in the household. Thank you. I love that you alerted authorities and that you didn't alert and run, <laughs> right? You stayed. Love it. One and two. I've had a couple occasions where people have come to me, uh, wives have come to me and talked about being abused, uh, and then when encouraged to reach out to a resource similar to some of the ones that are mentioned, uh, you know, or talk to law enforcement or whatever, very hesitant to do that. Any advice on helping uh, adults who come to us? Yeah, good, good question. Thank you so much for asking it. Um, statistically, uh, people will leave six to eight times before leaving finally. So anybody that's in a helping position, like a pastor or a social worker or a nurse, uh, it takes a lot of patience. Because in, in our heads, it's like, you, you got to leave them. You got to get safe. Uh, but that's not where they are necessarily, right? So it's important, I think, for a pastor to have a little team of people who um, can be supportive without being pushy. And uh, most of the time, the, the male-female dynamic will be hampering. So it's better to have women help women. It, it's just that in any helping situation, um, it, it's just normal to really idolize and um, venerate and just like, oh, you're so wonderful. You know, so, so my best advice is get a little team going. And that team know what the resources are in the local area. And that team can surround the person and just be there. Don't be pushy. Don't say you got to leave. Uh, just be there. It's uh, being their ministry. It's being their ministry. I have lots of questions, but I'll just ask you one right now. Um, I've dealt with multiple women who were actually immigrants who married their husbands and came over 
and we're even still working on getting their green card as the abuse was happening. And I know there's legal resources to help, and I found many of those. But a question that I have is with these numbers you're giving and stuff, do they have translation services or anything like that available? So if a woman called, they could get somebody who speaks their language to interact with them. If anybody has access to the web right now, let's let's try and find that because I don't know the answer. Uh, Andrea says she thinks that there is, but it depends on the language. Clearly, Spanish. Yes, I could say confidently that. But what languages are you looking at? Eastern European or um, a variety like Filipino, or and I know there's a variety of languages in the Philippines. So what we've done is find a church person because we tend to have one who speaks that language who is um, trustworthy who the person's comfortable with having bring in to do the translation but i was just wondering if you knew of any resources that we could use that were more international i really don't but um i've done some studies for the general conference and they've been global in nature. And so they have a lot of resources as far as people who speak and translate. So at least, who could I get there? Um, let me give it some thought. Do you have your name on the list? Okay, let me know, remind me, and I will make sure that you have something. Go ahead. And this is the list. If you want the resources, you can put your name and email address. Just have a comment because we've pastored quite a long time and we have had a predator, at least one in every church we have ever been in, except one that we know of. So it's definitely there. And part of the complication comes when people in the church, like we put those little pamphlets in the stalls of the bathroom and every week this is just one incident and they were just they would be all gone and this is not a big church well we finally someone finally came and talked to my husband and said they don't like those in the stall okay and so apparently someone was taking them out every sabbath that we'd go to the church so i got to the point where i had to go in there and restock them every time because that's their strong belief and they would just keep taking them out. Anyway, so that's just a comment I wanted to say. You may need to check the stalls pretty regularly because i that's what I do almost every week. I've done every week. Anyway, the question I have is, we've had a predator. What do you do when they get out of jail and they want to come back to your church? And it divides the, it divided one of our churches because you know, half of them are relatives of one side and the other half of relatives of the other side. What do you do? Ideas and suggestions. We are open. So, um, and I think the attorney could correct me if I'm wrong. Usually when they're um, released from a, a prison facility, they have conditions. And so I think one of the conditions, especially if they've been identified as a predator, that they cannot return to an environment where there's small children or they have some sort of um, regulation where they can't go near their victim, you know. So I'm, I'm not sure, but there should be some conditions 
when they're released that they cannot return to that area or a certain amount of distance from a facility, a public place where there are children. I may be incorrect, so the attorney's coming. <laughs> a lot of it depends on state law. A lot of it depends on state law. Sometimes in some states, uh, a predator has to make an application with the church and with the pastor. Uh, but a really good resource to follow is Adventist Risk Management's uh, church participation agreement. And they keep that updated. It's always available up there. And in Indiana, where I, where I serve, I do, I do planned giving, religious liberty, stewardship, and, and uh, church property matters. And then I help give counsel in some other areas, too. Um, that's, what, that's our official guidelines that we use. And uh, you've got to have somebody with them. To use a footfall metaphor, you have a spy. You know, if the opposite team has a really mobile quarterback, the defense has a spy that always keeps that guy in front of him. Perfect. Thanks so much. Okay, it's 10 after. We do need to um, bring this to a close. I would just like to thank you for being here. You have been such a great um, and attentive and um, inspiring uh, audience. I know that you had to come a long way from the main area. You had to find this place. So congratulations on your persistence. Please do reach out to me, either email or text. And um, anybody that is interested in really being a part of this work, um, I have like five minutes, and I, I need to leave for the airport. But I would like to know um, if, you know, what I started out saying as I was beginning was uh, I was reading in Matthew that Jesus was looking up and he said, the harvest is ready, but the workers are few. So pray for more workers. So if, if you want to be a part of the work, come up here, um, and, but I'll say goodbye to the majority of you right now. Thanks so much for being here. <laughs>